Well, I do thank Dave and Monica and John Mark and, and the folks at the AV table, Kevin and Ruth and, and others who have served us uh, week by week. You know, this is, uh, we, we by no means take it for granted, and it's such a privilege to sing with the saints like that. I mean, uh, you know, no matter what is going on in the world, no matter what is going on in your own heart, you know, to, to stop and to gather with God's people and to lift your voices to sing praise to Christ is joyful. It's, it's enjoyable. It's satisfying. And, uh, you know, how kind of God. For, you know, he says praise is becoming to the upright. Uh, it's fitting for us, but it's, it's also a pleasure. It's, it's, a pleasant, it's a pleasant thing to sing the praises of God. In fact, our joy in Christ is not complete until it's expressed. You know, we can have affections of love and, and emotions of uh, thankfulness and gratitude, but they're, they're in a measure not completed until they're, they're expressed. And, and musical worship and, and songs of praise give us that opportunity so that God is glorified in the same moment that His people are satisfied. And, and that is just a, a glorious privilege uh, for God to make uh, our duty, our delight, to make His glory our good. And, yeah, that kind of touches a little bit on what I, I want to speak about tonight. I, I don't have a sermon, but I do have a, just a devotional thought, and, uh, and it's from Philippians chapter 1. It was a text that I preached uh, in this pulpit uh, under this tent several weeks ago. Uh, just, by, just for my own curiosity, how many heard that sermon that I preached from Philippians 1? So, so less than half of you. So that's good. So I, I'm not going to re-preach that, but there, there's something in there that, of course, in any sermon, when you're dealing with a text, your job is to present the intent of the author, and, and therefore there, there are a million little rabbit trails that you could go on in any text and camp there and, and you know, have thoughts and, and reflections and devotional uh, reflections upon uh, that in a sermon might just not be appropriate because you're not there to give your own musings. You're there to convey what's in the text. And of course, we could preach sermon upon sermon on single texts, but sometimes you just don't get to say everything or everything you want in a particular message. And I wanted tonight to zero in on something that I, I think I did mention in that sermon, but that I, I'd like to expound upon. And it concerns the very heart of the Christian life. I mean, the very heart of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to follow Christ and walk after Him and to please Him in all respects and to live a life devoted to Him. What is the chief end of man? We know the answer to that question. The chief end of man, so says the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God. 1 Corinthians ten thirty two. whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all, or is it 1031, do all to the glory of God, right? Whatever it is that you do, do everything in the name of, to the glory of God. And, and so our chief concern, our chief duty in life, the purpose for which God has given us breath, the reason why we're here now is so that Christ may be exalted in our bodies, whether by life or by death so that we can make much of the God who gave us life and then gave us eternal life, who rescued us from our sin, 
who did all the things that we, we sang today about, that the, the, the Christ who stood in our place to bear our penalty, and we marvel at the cost that this one who never deserved to, be, to have anything but the, uh, the, the unfettered delight, the overflowing delight of his Father, the one who always obeyed. He stands in the place of, of those who have sinned and who deserve hell, and he bears our curse so that we might enjoy the reward that he deserves. Not, not only for what he's done, but for who he is. Great is thy faithfulness, that God is the God who, who will not be moved. He is the sure and steady anchor. And so we, we come and we, we, we give him praise and we live a life uh, that is to his honor and glory because of who he is and what he's done for us. I was thinking today about the... Uh, this, the line in Jesus, I, my cross have taken, which says, um, human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them untrue. And that's true. Even our, our, you know, the, our closest and most trusted acquaintances and friends are, are sinful. And so they're sometimes sinful in surprising ways. And ones you trusted and hoped in and depended upon all of a sudden show themselves not to be trustworthy, not to be dependable. And yet we have a God who is not like them, untrue, but who is always true, who's always faithful. And so we sing praise, and we don't just sing praise, but we live to his glory. And if we fail, again, if we fail to do that, we miss the entire purpose of life. The entire purpose for which we've been given new life in Christ, the entire purpose for which we've been given life in the first place whatsoever. And so if that's the case, if you will waste your life if you do not live it to the glory of Christ, the question is, how then do I glorify Christ? What is at the bottom of living a life to the glory of God? And Philippians 1 answers that question. Those of you who were at the sermon or heard the sermon since then know where I'm going with this, and I'm glad that there are a lot of you who didn't hear it, so you don't know exactly where I'm going, uh, and it's not just all redundant, but I don't think we can hear it too often either way. So Philippians 1, Paul is in jail. He's on house arrest uh, in Rome, awaiting his trial before Nero. Nero was the Caesar, the Roman emperor uh, at that time. Nero was a psychopath. He he, uh, was not not too long after Philippians was written, was the emperor in, you know, at the time of the writing of 1 Peter, where he was literally impaling Christians upon spikes and lighting them as human torches to light the city of Rome to sort of show his magnificence to sort of show his power. And so Paul is, is in, a, in, in dire straits. He's on house arrest. This would mean being chained by the wrists uh, at least, 18 inches of a chain to a, a praetorian guard, a Roman soldier in Caesar's own special guard. Uh, and th- there would be uh, shifts, you know, it would be four six-hour shifts in a day. And, uh, and so he'd have four different praetorian guards chained to him uh, every single moment of the day. And the Philippians love Paul and have, have participated in his ministry, have given to his ministry, we learn in chapter 4, and they're concerned that Paul is, is in prison and that the gospel's being hindered. And, and, he, and he writes to them to explain, listen, you don't have to worry. The gospel is advancing even through my imprisonment. And, and, and in fact, because I got these guys chained to me, you know, six different ones for four hours at a time, I'm preaching the gospel to them, and the praetorian guard, Caesar's own guard, is getting saved. And so I, far from being discouraged, far from being let down, far from being 
despondent. I'm rejoicing because Christ is being preached, and that's where my joy is. My joy is seeing Christ preached and lifted up and exalted. But Paul is facing life or death issues here. He, he could very well be put to death by Nero, who is, like as I said, is a psychopath. And so he's waiting to hear uh, the fate of his own life, whether he's going to live on in the flesh and, and have fruitful labor for the people of God, or whether he's going to die and go to be with Christ. And he's, he's talking about his mindset as he anticipates these alternatives. And he picks it up in 19, where he says at the end of 18b, yes, and I will rejoice because I know. I will rejoice because something is true. What is it that's true that's going to cause me to rejoice? That this will turn out for my deliverance or my salvation through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And right now you might be thinking, well, my deliverance, my salvation, this is going to turn out for my deliverance from jail, from house arrest. Well, Paul doesn't know that at this point. He doesn't know that he's actually going to be rescued from house arrest. He might die. And we're going to, he explains in the next verse, right, that whether I live or whether I die, right, I'm rejoicing. So if he knows that he's not going to die, to say whether I live or whether I die doesn't make sense. But he's saying this is going to turn out for deliverance, for a salvation of sorts, which may be the salvation of death physically, and then the, the inheritance of eternal life in heaven. So I, I'm, I'm rejoicing because I know I'll be delivered, I'll be saved, according, verse 20, to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So I'm going to have deliverance. Well, what's that mean, Paul? Uh, well, that the Spirit's going to provide through the prayers of God's people. But what does that mean, Paul? According to my earnest expectation and hope, what are you hoping for, Paul? That I won't be put to shame in anything. What does it mean? What's the opposite of your shame, Paul? That with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted. That's what everything is driving at for Paul. The passion of his life is that Christ would be exalted. The word is megaluno. It's it's probably better translated magnify. Mega is the Greek word for big. Magnify means to make, to look big. I want Christ to be made to look big. I want him magnified. Think about what a magnifying glass does. A, A magnifying glass takes something that's small and makes it look bigger. That's not quite the magnification or the exaltation that Paul is talking about because Christ isn't small. His glory isn't small. That has to be made to look bigger than it actually is. Rather than a magnifying glass, when, when Paul's desiring to glorify God, when to magnify Christ, what we mean when we say glorify God is not to make God look more glorifying than he actually is. It's certainly not to add glory to God's essence. Certainly that could not be done. He is perfectly and infinitely glorious. So to glorify God doesn't mean adding to his essential glory. It means adding to what we might call his ascribed glory. Psalm 29 has that that great call to worship, ascribe to the Lord, peoples of the earth, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Speak of the glory. Tell God he is glorious. Proclaim the glory of Christ. 
So glorifying God doesn't mean to give God anything that he didn't have. Rather than a magnifying glass, the way that we glorify God is more like a telescope. A telescope takes things that look really, really, really small to us, like on a, a, an especially clear night, you might see the bright shining, what looks like a star, and it's Venus, right? Venus is big, okay? Venus is not uh, this tiny little, tiny little, tiny little dot in the sky. It's this humongous planet, and yet it appears to us as small, but what does a telescope do? It doesn't make Venus any bigger than it is. It shows us how big it actually is. It takes something that's small to us through the weakness of our own perception and gives us a a little bit of a glimpse as to how glorious and magnificent and big it is. That's what what we mean when we mean magnifying God, glorifying God, showing God to be as big and as glorious and as satisfying and as lovely and as beautiful as he is putting him on display to those who might not see him as glorious as he is, magnifying him in their sight. That's what's at the bottom of Paul's affections as he sits in jail. And he says, this is my great eager expectation and hope that whether I live or whether I die, Christ will be magnified in me. The way that I handle myself, the way that I I confront this trial is my prayer and my hope, not just my prayer, but my my confident expectation is that whether I live or whether I die, whether Nero says, release him, or whether he says, off with his head, either way, I'm okay and I'm rejoicing because Christ will be magnified. He'll be made to look big. Now, how? How does Paul know that? I mean, He's banking his, literally, he's banking his whole life on this. He's betting his life that he should be joyful and not sorrowful on the fact that his greatest joy is going to be accomplished either way. How can he be so sure that his greatest joy will be accomplished? How can he be so sure that Christ will be magnified in him, whether by life or by death? Well, verse 21 says, for... I'm convinced that Christ will be magnified in my body whether I live or die because. And some translations of the English Bible leave the word for out because they think it's just not easy reading. They think that it's just, you know, it's, it's more readable if it's not there. I'm telling you, if you have a, a Bible that doesn't have the word for that begins verse 21, you must get a different translation because this is, this is one of the most pre- precious realities uh, and bedrock foundations of the Christian life. And you need to know that four is in the original and it's doing something huge. How can I be sure that I'm glorifying Christ? How can I be sure that I'm glorifying Christ in such a way that it will sustain my joy even when I confront death? Well, because for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I don't have time to unpack all of that, but what does it mean that to die is gain. Well, in Philippians 3, 7, the term gain shows up again, 3, 7, 8, and 9. The only other place the term is used in Philippians, and I think it gives us insight into what Paul's talking about. He says, he's just gone through in in chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, all of these inherited privileges and religious attainments that, that he counted on and trusted in for salvation before he 
was a Christian. He talks about his heritage. He talks about his social standing. He talks about his religious zeal. And he says, all these things, are, are when I looked upon them, I looked upon them as gains to me. But verse 7 says, now, but whatever things were gains to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I looked at all those things that I trusted in for righteousness. And, when, and before I was saved, they looked like pluses, like, hey, I'm going to get into heaven because I'm a Jew. I'm going to get into heaven because I'm a Benjamite. I'm going to get in front, into heaven because I'm a Pharisee. I'm going to get into heaven because I'm righteous. And then he met Christ on the road to Damascus. He was flung down to the ground, blinded, saw the glory of Jesus and thought, all of those things are loss. They're not even just worthless. They're loss. They're positively harmful. And so I've counted them to be worthless and worse than worthless because Christ is all my righteousness, not all the things I was trusting in, Christ alone. And then he says, beyond that, more than that, verse 8 of Philippians 3, more than just having counted all things to be lost in the past, I do presently, I count, present tense, I go on counting all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. So not only does Paul trust in Christ as the eternal and only source of righteousness, but he goes on counting all things to be lost in comparison to knowing him. He, he, he doesn't just say that was conversion. He says, moment by moment, I count all the wonderful things that I would have enjoyed as a respected rabbi in Judaism. All the privileges, all the, the, the land and the family and the relationships and, and, the, and the partnerships and the, and the kickbacks that I would enjoy as a respected member of society, the wealth. All of that, I go on counting that as loss. It's not as if I think, oh man, if, if I just never followed Christ and if I stayed in Judaism, look at how much better my life would be. I, I wouldn't be spending a night and a day in the deep. I wouldn't be beaten with rods. I wouldn't be whipped. I wouldn't be stoned. No, he's saying, I'm looking at all the things that I gave up that I don't have now. And you know what I, my, my settled conviction of them is day by day? They're dung. They're refuse. I count all, I count it all as rubbish because if my heart went after those joys, those comforts, I'd be committing idolatry. And so I wouldn't be worshiping Christ. And so then I wouldn't have the hope of heaven. What is he saying? He's saying Christ is more. I count Christ as more surpassingly valuable than everything in this life that I could lose. And so to die is gain means to to, to, to count Christ as such a treasure that I can suffer the loss of all things, which is what death death is, the, the loss of all things in this life. And I can call that gain because I gain Christ who is more surpassingly valuable than, than any of those things. And then to live is Christ is virtually the same thing, except that you're not dying, you're living. It's to live in such a way that you do go on counting all things as refuse, 
for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. You know, if you weren't a Christian, you could sleep in on Sunday mornings. If you weren't a Christian, you could give full vent to your lusts. If you weren't a Christian, you could cut those corners at work or on your taxes. If you weren't a Christian, you could be lazy and just watch TV all day rather than being disciplined about serving the body or, or reading the scriptures or praying or, or doing something, you know, edifying with your family. There are all sorts of things that the flesh would love to do. That being a Christian says, no, you can't do that. And if you look upon those things and you say, well, there's treasure there, there's joy there, there's satisfaction there. You're not living in such a way as to live as Christ. To live is those things. To live is watching TV. To live is giving vent to your lusts. To live is money and power and fame. But for the Christian, to live is Christ. So in sum, to live is Christ and to die is gain means that I am more satisfied by Christ than by all that life can offer and all that death can take more satisfied by Christ than all that life can offer and all that death can take. Now, what I really want to press in on you is is the two words that come after for and before that memorable phrase, to live as Christ, to die as gain. How many of you memorize Philippians 1.21 as to live as Christ, to die as gain? You don't think of those first three words. And maybe you might even think of the first word, if your Bible has it translated in there, you might even think God's going to be glorified. Christ is going to be magnified in my body, whether I live or whether I die, for to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's not what Paul says. Look at the text. Christ will be exalted or magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To me. That is, a, that is maybe the key phrase in this verse, although it's hard to pick. And it's, and it's a thought that we skip over. What does Paul mean by to me? To me speaks of some subjective evaluation, some subjective appraisal. It's true that Christ is more valuable than all that life can offer and all that death can take. He is objectively more valuable than everything. But that's not what Paul says. He doesn't say Christ will be glorified in me because he's more satisfying than all that life can offer and death can take. He says Christ will be glorified in me because to me he is more satisfying than all that life can offer and all that death can take. There is something that's going on in Paul's heart that is a subjective estimation about the worth of Christ. And that's how he knows he will glorify Christ. It's not simply an objective statement of indicative fact. It's that to me, in my heart, I believe, I feel, I think, I act in such a way that Christ is more satisfying than all that life can offer and all that death can take. We miss that. At, at, at the core of Paul's joy, at the, as he confronts life or death, as he's confronted with the loss of all things, the end of his ministry, rival preachers in Rome kind of, you know, 
making fun of Paul. He's, he's in jail. We're not. We get to preach. He has to be holed up in there. What sustains his joy is that Christ will be magnified in him because he will be satisfied in Christ. You know, you've heard it before if you've listened to anything from John Piper, that little phrase, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And people balk at that phrase because it seems to, it seems to tie God's glory or, or Christ's glory to our levels of emotional satisfaction. But think about it. Why wouldn't that be the case? Isn't, I mean, we're not saying, again, that God's glory flexes and, and ebbs and flows uh, on the basis of what humans do or feel, you know, but we would say, do all to the glory of God. Glorify Christ. Ascribe glory to his name. Not add glory to his essence, but show him to be glorious. And when we live in ways that are obedient to the scriptures, we glorify him. And people don't object to saying, you know, that going to church or that reading the scriptures or that shepherding your family in a biblical way, nobody, nobody has a problem saying that that's glorifying to God, that that glorifies him, that he is glorified more in us when we are more obedient to him. Well, if he commands us to delight ourselves in him, Psalm 37, 4, if he commands us, Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord, O ye righteous. If, if Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always, if that's a command, then of course we glorify him when we obey the command to delight in him. When we obey the command to find him so satisfying that we're happy to lose everything so that his name would be glorified. When we find Christ, when we count Christ to be so surpassingly valuable that we're happy to suffer the loss of all things. Don't miss that a key, maybe the key component for magnifying Christ in your body, whether you live or whether you die, is that to you, subjectively and in your heart, there is a sense of the sweetness of Christ. You cannot glorify Christ. You cannot magnify his worth without having a sense and a taste of that sweetness. You can say all day, notionally, that honey is sweet. And you can, you know, up and down to your blue in the face, honey is sweet. Honey is sweet. Oh, honey is sweet. But you know how you magnify the sweetness of the honey? You taste it, and you enjoy it. And you say, oh, it's sweet. I want more. You can say all day, Christ is glorious. Christ is glorious. Christ is satisfying. Christ is sweet. But you know how you really glorify the sweetness of Christ? By tasting him and having a gust and a sweetness and, and a relish of that sweetness. A gust and a sense and a relish of that sweetness. You glorify the, the bread as capable of satisfying hunger, not by proclaiming how bread satisfies hunger, but by eating the bread. Christ says, I'm the bread of life. And if you eat of it, you'll never be hungry again. You magnify the thirst quenchingness of a fountain by, not by telling people about how good the water is, 
without drinking it, but going to the fountain and drinking it and having your thirst quenched. And so people, I love you. You are grace life. You are my people. You are my brothers and sisters. You are the precious sheep that the Lord has entrusted to me specifically and to Phil to care for and to shepherd. And I want you above all things to know the joy of what it means to live a life to the glory of Jesus, to magnify Christ in your body, whether by life or death. And you will not do that if you skip over the words to me. You will not do that if you don't have, you don't get honest with your heart and say, can I say that? Is that true of my affections? Is it to me that to live is Christ such that Christ is more valuable to me than all that life can offer? Is it to me that to die is gain, that Christ is more valuable than all that death can take? Is that really the case? Because if it is, I tell you something, you'll live a life in practical obedience to God. If you're more satisfied in Christ than, than all that this life can give you, you won't go seeking satisfaction in sin. You'll go seeking satisfaction in Jesus. If, if you are more satisfied in Christ than all that death can take from you, you won't sacrifice faithful in the, faithfulness in the face of death because you'll be more satisfied in him than by everything that death can take from you. And so you'll live faithfully in that moment. You'll say, no, whatever I'm trying to avoid death to hang on to, I can let go and count as rubbish because what I gain is more sweet than that. So my challenge to you this week is to get alone with God before his word, to read Philippians 1, 19 to 21, and to focus, circle even, those words to me. And ask yourself, can I make that same subjective appraisal about Christ's worth to me? Not, is he objectively worthy? We know that he is. But is he subjectively worthy to me? Because unless he is, I've got no hope of magnifying him in my body, whether by life or death. And if you find that he's not, and of course, to some measure, we are all going to find that uh, to be the case. Because if, if that wasn't the case, we'd never sin ever. All sin is a failure to properly esteem the glory of Christ as more satisfying than all else. And so you're going to discover, no, in this area of my life, I, it's not to me to live as Christ. It's to live as something else. Do the heart work of repentance. Lord, search me and try me and see if there be any hurtful way in me. Why is it not to me that to live as Christ? What's wrong with my subjective appraisal of Christ's objective glory? What's wrong with my subjective appraisal of the world and sin's objective ugliness that I find that glorious? And so I wind up glorifying sin and magnifying the worth of sin. How in the way that I treat my friends, how in the way that I treat my family, my brothers and sisters in Christ, how in the way that I approach my Bible reading, how in, in the way that I think of the worship of Christ's church, how is it that to me is or is not to live as Christ and to die as gain? Where is my, where is my subjective appraisal of his, of his glory going wrong? 
And then do two things. Rest in the finished work of Christ. Who, who came to earth and lived life in the flesh, always subjectively appraising the worth and the glory of his Father above everything else. For to Christ, to live was the Father, and to die was gain. He succeeded where you failed. And so where you see your failure, run to the cross and remember that your Savior has conquered where you have failed. He succeeded where you have gone astray, and he's borne the punishment that is due to you because of it. And he credits you the perfect record of his own righteousness, the perfect record of his own esteeming the Father as more glorious than all. And rest and, 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 and draw power and strength to obey from the fact that that obedience in principle has already been credited to your account. And then, after you've done that, number two, pray that God would make Christ glorious in your sight. Pray to taste the honey. Pray to eat the bread, to be satisfied by the bread. Pray to be quenched by the fountain. Satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, O Lord. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs and pants after you, O God. Say, Lord, make that my experience. I don't want to just be a notional Christian who knows that it's true that Christ is glorious, but doesn't have a sense of it in my heart day by day, because that wouldn't glorify you. God, satisfy me with yourself, with your covenant faithfulness, with the beauty of your character, with the glory of your deeds toward me in grace, so that I might live a life and die a death that magnifies Christ. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. Would you search us all and reveal to us the pockets of our lives which we are not subjectively esteeming Christ to be more worthy than all things. And Father, grant us repentance in the hope of of the beauty of Jesus, in the hope of the, the sweetness of the honey. Give us repentance so that we might live lives putting your worth and honor on display. We want the world to see that the honey of Christ is sweet. And so we pray that you would give us the taste of the honey and that you would give us the joy that comes from tasting sweetness. We thank you that you are a God who, is, who lives up to the hype. Lord Jesus, that you are a Savior who is worthy of all this language of gust and relish and sweetness because you are more satisfying than all that life can offer and all that death can take. Reveal yourself to your people. Open our eyes that we might behold a wonderful Savior in the Word of God. Be thou my vision. And be honored. Be glorified in the lives of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.